Jordan got admitted to the hospital that morning, March 1st. They said she was sick. And I told them, yes, we've been trying to tell you for three years. But I told them that I had been constantly bringing her in and that they refused to do anything beyond migraines. When they were doing rounds, the GI doctor who saw her earlier or in February came running in and told the attending hematologist that she failed to read Jordan's lab work from the weeks prior when she was in the hospital. They were still at that time at about eight in the morning, still talking about transferring her to another facility. So we thought that the worst was probably over and about 8.30 or so, neurosurgery came in and said he needed to remove the shunt tubing from her abdomen because she had an infection and he didn't want it to spread to her brain. So we authorized the surgery. I waited in the family room right outside the ICU unit while they performed that procedure. About 10.40 in the morning, a social worker came in the family room and sat down and told me Jordan coded. I just remember going to her room. I ran to her room yelling, you killed my daughter, you killed her. Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the U.S., killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. 23% of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported, because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb. I am Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews and I talk with patients and families, physicians and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, remediescounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error, chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution, some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. Sandy and Anthony Perez kept telling doctors their daughter Jordan was very sick. Their concerns were dismissed and Jordan's pain minimized. They were ping-ponged between specialists, dealing with ongoing misdiagnosis, and doctors who refused to listen to Jordan and her parents and threatened to remove her medical care. When Jordan died in the hospital, Sandy and Anthony thought it was due to a yet-to-be-diagnosed illness. Only later would they find out that Jordan had been poisoned to death by the hospital and that they were covering it up. Wanting justice for Jordan, Sandy and Anthony sought legal support. Over 100 lawyers told them the same thing. California has a law that effectively makes hiring a lawyer for medical malpractice suits a non-starter. The law puts a cap on how much lawyers can be paid and how much victims can be awarded. Suing is a money-losing proposition. 
As Sandy and Anthony learned, the legal system is set up to deny justice to medical victims, and the medical system is set up to deny accountability from doctors. A de facto license to kill. Jordan shouldn't have died. Sandy and Anthony shouldn't have to fight to find out how the hospital killed their daughter. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and all the major podcast platforms. Please consider leaving a kind comment. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Simply go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. Do you need the support of a counselor for dealing with your own experience of medical error or living with complex chronic illness? You can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Now, here is my interview with Sandy and Anthony Perez about their daughter Jordan. And as always, a note of caution that some folks may be triggered by their experience with the healthcare system. Great. Thank you, Sandy, and thank you, Anthony, for taking time. So I like to do all of my interviews in chronological order. So I'll ask each of you, where were you born? Where did you grow up? What was your childhood like? And where did you guys meet? Um, I was born actually just outside of Chicago, was raised in California since uh, seven. And um, normal childhood, grew up with three sisters, um, <clears throat> went to school, went to high school, um, college, the usual expected um, path. And Anthony and I met in 1994 through my sister and her uh, husband. And Anthony, where'd you grow up? I was born in Hollywood, California. I grew up in Lakewood until about 1975. Then we uh, bought a house in Riverside and grew up there. Um, like Sandy says, I met her through my brother-in-law. Um, had a good childhood, uh, great mom and dad. And um, that's about it. Okay, so those towns that you mentioned, those sound like they're also in California? Yes. Okay. And so today we're going to talk about your experiences with the healthcare system, specifically around your daughter, Jordan. So maybe take me back to when Jordan was born and, and her childhood. Okay. Um, Jordan was born April 5th, 2000. Um, she was um, a cranky baby. She didn't want to sleep unless she was held. Um, wouldn't sleep in her own bed, always slept with us. As she grew up, she was um, she was a one-off child. She liked to do things her way. She'd dress herself and sometimes wouldn't match, and there was no arguing with her. She wanted to do what she wanted. Um, she played softball since the age of four. 
Um, she made the City League's all-star team, I believe, two years. Um, her dad coached her with SoCal Legacy. And um, when we moved to the high desert, um, we ended up putting her in travel ball. Um, she was a happy kid. What's and travel ball? Travel ball is travel softball. They're travel leagues where um, they're more intense, um, higher, um, higher quality co coaching. Um, they're more geared to getting exposure to colleges. Her age group, it wasn't college geared, but that was the intent of preparation and play. Um, they call it travel ball because they traveled to different cities and played different cities and teams and uh, tournaments and stuff like that. Oh, so pretty high end athletics for a kid of that age. Oh yeah. Yes. Um, she was the kid who would befriend others. Um, I remember at her services, several um, of her friends that we hadn't seen in years showed up and they all spoke about how they were alone on the side and she came up to them and said, my name's Jordan. What's yours? Do you want to play? And she would include others. Um, it was very important to her to make others feel included. Um, and she wanted to ensure that they were involved and not left out. So very empathic. And that just came natural to her. And so when did her health issues begin? In December 2000, well, prior to that, about in May 2014, she was playing travel ball and she would complain of headaches. Um, she had allergies and uh, one of her allergies was grass, but she would play on the grass every day with softball. So with Motrin and Benadryl helping her, we didn't think it was anything else until she started complaining of neck pain. We took her in in December 2014, and she said that her neck hurt and her head hurt. The doctor suspected mastoiditis, which is an infection of the mastoid bones behind the ear, and he sent her to the ER. We went to the ER and they didn't find anything. They didn't run any blood tests that I recall. They, I believe they did a CAT scan and suggested it was migraines and sent her home. <clears throat> a couple weeks later, um, she started exhibiting symptoms of the flu. And so we ended up taking her to the ER because she couldn't hold down any fluids or food. And um, her doctor suggested she was dehydrated and to take her in. So when we got there, um, we ended up telling the ER doctor that about the previous diagnosis from her primary care doctor. So he said he would run additional tests. And that's when they found blood clots in her brain. Um, they couldn't treat her at this hospital. It's not a trauma center. So they sent us down to another trauma center that was more local to us not local from this hospital, but the nearest trauma center for us. Um, and that's where she was treated for the next three and a half years. So that must have been frightening to find out she had blood clots in her brain. 
Yes, and how it could be missed so easily. It doesn't normally show up on a CAT scan, but it did at this time. Um, we didn't know what was going on or what was happening. The, when she was transferred to this other hospital, um, we asked how she could get this type of infection with no ear infection and no sinus infection and nobody could explain it. Oh, okay. Uh, maybe you can clarify. So it sounds like an infection is causing the blood clots. Yes, they told us that the blood clots um, were a rare complication of the mastoiditis infection. And when we asked about the mastoiditis infection, how one gets it, they told us an ear infection or a sinus infection. And she never had that. So we asked, how could that be if she never had those? And nobody could answer us. Okay, so they start treating her uh, blood clots in her brain? They ended up putting her on a heparin drip for a day and then changed her over to uh, Lovenox injections. And what, what are those things? Heparin and Lovenox are blood thinning medications. So that way they could prevent additional clots. They didn't they told us it wouldn't break up the clots that she already had. It would just prevent it from getting worse or getting new clots. Um, they also put her on antibiotics for six weeks um, to fight the infection. Sorry, how was her health during that period? Um, once she started getting treatment, she started to perk up a bit. Um, her headaches would still come and go, and they were um, treated with Toradol, which I understand is a super Motrin. And that seemed to be her wonder drug. She, um, when she took that, she would be good for 24 to 36 hours on one dose. And um, so it appeared that she was fine and she was, you know, getting better. Um, what we didn't know um was she wasn't she actually wasn't getting any better during that time in december 2014 while she was getting treatment she had um what appeared to be a stroke and they sent her back to icu for monitoring um ultimately they just sent her home saying she was improving and to continue the antibiotics at home and what about the the stroke they thought she had. They said that there was no damage and that they couldn't be sure that it was a true mini stroke. So we've heard she had a stroke and she didn't have a stroke, but she exhibited signs of stroke. Okay, so they, they sent her home? They sent her home um, just after January 1st of 2015. Um, a couple days later, we ended up in the local ER um, for chest pain. She had uncontrolled chest pain and, but, um, they called the other facility to transfer her and the other facility denied transfer. They ended up treating her and sending her home. The very next day we ended up down at the trauma center for the chest pain, increased headache, blurry vision, and a, reaction to the antibiotic med medication. 
and um, they admitted her again for a couple of days and adjusted her antibiotics and sent her home again. Not, to my recollection, they didn't do anything about the chest pain. Um, about a week or so after that, in January 2015, they, the eye doctor suggested a lumbar puncture because she was getting blurry vision and blind spots and swelling of the optic nerves. So we went back to the facility and had uh, lumbar puncture done. And we found that her um, pressure was severely elevated. For folks who aren't familiar with a lumbar puncture, what is it and what does it indicate? The lumbar puncture is where they stick a needle in your back to extract spinal fluid. Um, during the process, they're able to monitor the pressure level um, as well as drain uh, cerebral spinal fluid to check for infections. When they did this, her pressure was elevated. Normally, it's below 20, if I recall correctly, and hers was near 40. Um, increased pressure can affect your vision. And that may also explain her headaches. Yes. It didn't fully explain her headaches, as we found out through the years. Um, the following week, they did another lumbar puncture. They admitted her this time. Um, the next day after the lumbar puncture, she would vomit from touch. She wouldn't even have to move. If you touched her, she would get sick. They ended up putting in a lumbar drain where they attached the drain to the spinal column to be able to drain this uh, cerebral spinal fluid. And they had to monitor her for about five weeks while they did that and while we waited for them to make a decision on how to proceed. Um, in February 2015, they ended up internalizing the drain, which becomes a lumbar shunt. And then they sent us home. Her headache seemed to be improving, but she was still taking Motrin almost on a daily basis. She ended up developing a bump on the surgical site on her back. And it was, the doctors had told us it was filling with um, cerebral fluid. And so they had to do a revision surgery. Um, okay. So um, just so I have sort of a picture in my mind. So she's got a, a shunt in her back that's draining excess cerebral spinal fluid? Correct. So that must have been uncomfortable for her to sleep? Yes. Yeah, she, she had to lay flat after surgeries. Um, she couldn't even get up to go to the restroom. Um, she was very uncomfortable because she couldn't lay on her side. She had a surgical scar on her abdomen as well as her back. Um, and she was in pain. She had to redo the surgery. Um, I believe it was March 2015. They had to, what they call a revision LP surgery. Um, she ended up doing that revision again in May because she kept leaking spinal fluid out of her back out of the surgical scar um she we thought we were on a better track so we ended up going to her softball banquet in june of 2015 
where they recognized her because she did make the softball team, but she never got to play. Um, so at that banquet, they did recognize her. However, we had to leave because she started leaking spinal fluid and we had to go back to the hospital. Um, she was admitted to the hospital where they ended up taking the shunt out and putting it back to a lumbar drain so that way they can monitor the spinal fluid, make sure there was no infection. And then a couple days after that, they ended up doing what they call a VP shunt, going from the head to the abdomen. So it was the shunt tubing was in the ventricles of her uh, front right side, and it was draining the fluid into her abdomen for the excess CSF to help reduce the pressure in her brain. So the shunt physically was inside her body from her head down to her abdomen? Yes, it, it ran from, they, they put a hole in her skull and it ran behind her ear, down her neck and over her shoulder down the back. Wow. So that was, that was uncomfortable for her. Yeah, I can only imagine. So what's the diagnosis at this point? This all sounds so very unusual. The diagnosis never changed. It was still mastoiditis with a rare complication of blood clots, causing uh, increased intracranial hypertension, or which was causing her headaches. But they never changed the diagnosis. Um, we learned later in January 2015, an infectious disease doctor suggested that um, cancer could be a cause as a differential diagnosis. Hematology did come in. We remember speaking to them. Um, they asked about cancer in the family, um, and we indicated there was on both sides. They never followed up on it for the entire three and a half years she was there. They never followed up on it. So, sorry, when was that that they suspected it possibly could be cancer? January 2015. January 2015, okay. And so they so, don't really follow up on that, but continue on with the mastodosis. Mastoiditis. Mastoiditis, mastoiditis. yeah, okay. Um, by... June, when she had the other surgeries, she was discharged. She was still getting headaches every day, and it affected her memory and her concentration. Um, she obviously couldn't go to school. Um, she was on what they call the uh, hospital homebound program, where she would do her schoolwork at home, and the district would send a teacher every day um, as she felt up to doing anything. There were times that I would have to write her assignments with her giving me her responses because she had IVs in her hands and she couldn't do anything. Um, she finished her freshman year about a week before her sophomore year started. We went on a vacation in August of 2015 and she stayed in the condo for almost the majority of the time because she just couldn't handle being out. Her head would hurt, she would feel nauseous. She, so she was still exhibiting the same symptoms that she had started exhibiting prior um, in December, 2014, despite all the surgeries, despite um, the treatments that they had given her. 
um, in, I know she was back in the hospital a few times for the headache pain and chest pain. And every time they couldn't find anything wrong um, and they would send her home. In February of 2016, her eye doctor saw that her optic nerves were swelling again and so recommended that her shunt be fully open to drain the the most amount of fluid and reduce the pressure in her head to help her vision. So we understood that the shunt was more a placement to save her vision so she wouldn't go blind than anything else. Um, it wasn't actually helping with any of her headaches. February 2016, the neurosurgeon opened her shunt all the way. She would still get sick. And she ended up being in and out of the hospital again that year. Um, about June 2016, she saw a new pediatric neurologist at the same facility. She was reassigned. And he started suggesting it was migraines because of a family history. And I told him it's not migraines. Motrin doesn't work on migraines. And Motrin works for her. She doesn't need anything stronger. And he then suggested she was abusing Motrin. And we questioned it because she was taking maybe 400 milligrams a day. Um, and that's not excessive. So he also suggested we go back to hematology because Jordan was still on her blood thinning um, medication. And he said that it's not meant for long term. And so he sent us back to hematology. Hematology did take her off that blood thinning medication in August 2016. By the end of the year, we're still battling the headaches and the nausea, um, the blurry vision, and she just kept getting sicker. Um, so what are you and Anthony thinking and feeling during this long period of time where she's getting treatment, but she's not getting better? she would go up and down in how she felt some days she was really good um so we tried to enjoy life with her um i was frustrated especially since the hospital kept telling us that it was migraines and i knew it wasn't when she would complain of jaw pain they'd send us to the dentist the dentist couldn't find anything her joints would ache rheumatology said nothing was wrong with her um I just grew more frustrated and I ended up taking her to another facility, but I didn't know what I was looking for. So we saw the same sort of specialist, neurosurgery, neurology, and they also suggested migraines. And so there was no point for us to drive so far to this other facility for something that they were going to default to that we didn't agree with. And we ended up back at the original trauma center. It was difficult because I, I was also working. Um, as she'd be in the hospital, I'd work from her bedside. Every day I would log in to work and do my job around doctors coming in, her going in for testing um, and procedures, sometimes working during the night just so I can make sure I had my hours in. But I grew increasingly frustrated Anthony? 
Yeah, it was just, we had no idea what we were looking at. Um, there was times she would come and she'd grab her neck like something was wrong. Um, so I thought she was having muscle spasms in her neck. She'd come out in the living room after sleeping, come out in the living room to get something to eat, and she'd be doubled over. She'd be holding her stomach bent over, and she'd just tell us she's in so much pain. And I had no idea what she was going through. And for her to go through that with no diagnosis is just ridiculous. Yeah, so she's in pain, she feels sick, uh, pretty low quality of life, not able to do a lot of schoolwork. Right, she yeah. ended up not being in school her sophomore year either. Again, on the home hospital program. Um, we had to fight the school because they wanted to put her on independent study and I told them no, because she was an advanced placement honor student. Um, before she got sick and I told them that they should make all uh, arrangements for her to maintain the same level of classes that as if she would be there. And they didn't want to do that. We fought it, um, kept her in her honors classes as we were able. Um, but she struggled. She struggled because she wasn't there. Um, she missed her friends. Yeah, that was a big thing for her, was nobody came to visit her. Um, she said, I got no friends. Yeah, you do. Um, it, it was just, it was hard on her. Yeah, not just physically, but emotionally and socially. Yes. Very much. So then chronologically, <laughs> what happened? In 2017, um, she was getting increased headaches. So when we saw hematology, they said that we needed to um, have a new lumbar puncture done to see if her pressure was changed. Um, and at that time, it was, it was about July 2017. And I told the hematologist, Jordan was now having what appeared to be blood clots on her toes. And he said that she must have dropped something on her feet or kicked something and caused trauma to herself. And I explained that that's not possible because she can barely get out of bed. And at that point, when we took her in for the toes, it did look like she had done some damage with her feet. Um, they weren't swollen. They were just bruised. So we ended up going to neurology to get an order for a lumbar puncture. <laughs> And at that time, the doctor called me and said, she needs to immediately be taken off Motrin. We need to detox her off Motrin. She's using it and abusing Motrin. And I said, okay, well, we'll see you in the hospital this evening. And he said that that wasn't going to be the case. We were in the hospital that night. She was vomiting. Um, she was so sick from the pain. Um, when she got admitted, that same doctor came in and insisted she had migraines and she needed to be detoxed from abuse of Motrin. And I argued with him. At that point, he told us if we refused to concede to his diagnosis of migraines, he would no longer treat Jordan. 
In the meantime, Jordan's lying in a hospital bed, sick, with no answers to us other than a forced diagnosis that didn't fit. I went out and I told the charge nurse that if they're going to just force migraines, we just want to go home, you know, call the doctor and have them discharge us. Neurosurgery at that point came in and said that he reviewed all of her MRIs for the past year and a half and saw that she had enlarged veins um, since the spring of last year, which would have been 2016. And he wanted to do angiograms to see if that was causing any issues in her brain. And what's an angiogram? An angiogram is when they put a, a catheter-like needle through your veins to get to a point in the body. In this case, it was her head um, to be able to see more clearly what is going on in the the vein the venous structure so it's got um, a little camera on the end of it is that i don't know if it had the camera as much as they use contrast i don't know exactly how they did it okay my guess is with contrast so that way they could see it on imaging as they went through the vein system um the neurologist who tried to force a diagnosis that we wouldn't accept came in sat down and asked for the complete history of jordan and so we did we ran through everything from 2014 to that point we brought up about her toes and he looked at them and at that time he said he would get a second opinion hematology consult he never noted it in her records he never requested it. We never saw hematology while we were there. He did say he would do a lumbar puncture to get her um, her level, her pressure reading. And if it was a certain number, we were to concede it was migraines. And I, I told him what I had to tell him to be able to get the testing and care for my daughter. When the numbers came back, I still disagreed with him. And I told him, it's not a migraine. There's something wrong with her. She's sick. They ended up discharging her on Motrin, of course. They gave her Motrin um, and sent her home. We did have one additional follow-up appointment with him. He did suggest that it was psychiatric. And he refused to treat her and referred her out to a new neurologist. So he followed through on his threat that he wouldn't treat our daughter anymore. When we saw the new neurologist in September of 2017, at first he mentioned pseudotumor cerebri, um, which is also intracranial hypertension where your brain thinks it has a tumor when it doesn't, which can cause headaches. and he indicated to us that he would re do some research and talk to us at her next appointment. At that point in time, we ended up back in the ER. She was sick still, and they said it was migraines. They said it was because all of the notes were heavily copied and pasted with the migraines and the fact that she was abusing Motrin when she wasn't, 
they decided to put her on a detox protocol called DHE. And they said that was heavily used to detox a patient from a medication that was causing them harm. She was so sick, not from the medication, but from the pain that they ended up giving her Toradol while they were giving her the detox protocol. What's Toradol? Toradol is basically a super Motrin. It's a very high dose of Motrin. Um, so while she's on the DHE protocol for the detox from Motrin, they're giving her Motrin. The doctor came in, the attending that was on duty that week that she was hospitalized came in and says, oh, it looks like the DHE protocol is working. And I said, no, you authorized use of Toradol, which is Motrin, and that's what's helping her, not the DHE protocol. And she said, okay, well, we'll send her home with Toradol, and you can follow up with the neurology about Motrin use. So when she got Toradol, um, she seemed okay for 24, maybe a little more hours than that. and then slowly she'd start declining again once the tortoise wear off. The Motrin she was taking was over the counter. Um, she wasn't even taking max doses. She was going by the directions. Uh, Sandy made sure that uh, when she needed Motrin, she would check the hour and say, you got 30 minutes left, you got an hour left. And I mean, everything was by the book. They sent her home and, um, like, like I said, with Motrin. We ended up going back to neurology, the one who suggested she had the increased hypertension. And at that point, he changed his diagnosis to migraines. And he attempted to treat her with migraine medications. Um, and we told him it wasn't migraines. And... He recommended Botox. She didn't want to do it. That same day that we were at that appointment, she got sick in his office and we went across the street to the ER. And again, they started with the, the migraines and we said, it's not migraines. They gave her Toradol. The attending didn't examine her, but came in the room and asked if anybody had told us that Jordan had an enlarged spleen if we were aware of it. And I said, no, nobody mentioned anything of the sort. What does it mean? You know, this, not just what does it mean, but what's the impact on Jordan? And she said, oh, it's probably nothing. And we never saw her again. And they discharged Jordan with migraines. And we fought it. And we ended up going to her primary care saying, there has to be something else that somebody's missing. And he sent her for testing um, at the same trauma center because all of her records were there. That way, if they found something, they would have easy access. In January of 2018, he sent her for abdominal scans, ultrasounds. And we did that February 14th of 2018. They wouldn't let us leave at first. They came in and asked us the history of her blood clots. They saw the shunt on the ultrasound um, and the tubing, so they asked questions about the shunt. 
And then they said, you need to follow up with your primary care right away. Um, I asked if we had to go to emergency and they said, no, just follow up um, with your primary care. So on our way home, I called the primary care to set an appointment and they didn't have the results yet. Um, they received the results the next day and called me and said, bring her in in the morning, which was February 16th of 2018. We went in that morning and he told us she had portal vein thrombosis, which is blood clots in the veins leading from the um, leading into the liver. And he sent us back to the trauma center where she had been treated before. Um, we ended up in the ER. And at the time, we didn't know that the individual who introduced himself as a doctor to us was actually an unlicensed medical student with no authority to examine, um, treat, and discharge Jordan. Um, his attending did sign saying she examined Jordan and she never did. We never saw her that day. And I, he said that he wouldn't accept the test results from another outside facility and they reran all the same tests. And they told, he told us the same thing that it was portal vein thrombosis. It was a GI issue and a follow-up outpatient with the GI department. Contact GI to set an appointment and they refused to do anything while we were sitting in the ER. They said we had to request a consult. And even though we told them multiple times that we attempted to ask a consult and they were telling us that it was already requested and we just needed to follow up outpatient, they refused to set an appointment. We did ask this individual to bring GI into the ER to see our daughter, and he said it wasn't necessary. At that point, we also asked them to notify hematology that we were there because this is now her third appearance of blood clots. And we wanted to make sure that they understood what was happening. And he again told us it was a GI issue and she needed to be seen outpatient. And they discharged her and sent her home telling us it was not a life-threatening condition. That the following Tuesday, cause Monday was a holiday. Um, that Tuesday, first thing in the morning, I called GI and I asked for an appointment. They told us that they would review her records from the hospital visit the week prior and somebody would call us in 24 to 48 hours with an appointment. They didn't call us until I believe March 2nd. Um, and she was already in the hospital at that point. They, I called hematology that day and I asked if they had been informed that she was in the ER and if they were made aware that she had any blood clots. They called me back and said that they were not told and to go to the ER and they would admit her um, for some more testing. So she was admitted on February 20th, 2018 until February 23rd. Um, the 21st, they wanted to send her home with a request to follow up outpatient. And because we hadn't heard from anybody, uh, I demanded that GI come see her while we were inpatient. GI came to see her and said that it was probably nothing, but they wanted to do an endoscopy where they stick the camera down the throat and see if they can see anything um, inside her abdomen. Uh, 
um, we were told the results of that test was she has mild reflux, but nobody could explain why she had blood clots. On February 21st, I had asked three different hematologists about um, cancer testing. One had told me that, yes, they do that test and they can do them. Another one indicated that he would order them. He never did. Um, and the third one said that the testing was unnecessary because her blood, her were normal. The one who told us that her labs were normal was the same one that was notified in 2015 that cancer was a differential diagnosis and he should do further testing, which he never did. We don't know what labs he was referring to as normal because her labs weren't normal as they were saying it was another issue based on the, the same labs that he kept insisting were normal. Um, they ended up sending her home. On February 26th, we were back in the ER. She was doubled over in pain and nothing was helping. And she was seen by a resident and that resident insisted she had constipation and gave Jordan an enema. Jordan felt completely humiliated and she was still in pain. Um, the attending signed off saying she examined our daughter. We've never seen her. She never came and examined Jordan. And she was sent home with constipation. Prior to us even going in, we had called the on-call GI doctor and let her know that we were on our way in and why. And the next day on the 27th, we did the same, talked to the on-call GI doctor, the same one we spoke to the day before. And she said, if we can manage the pain at home, just because we had an appointment on the 28th with the hematologist, that we should wait to the appointment and he would direct admit her to the hospital. So we managed at home and we took her to her appointment on the 28th with hematology. And I begged him to help her. And his answer was that it was a GI issue and he could refer her to pain management and he sent us home. He never put the notes in her chart for pain management. That night, we called the on-call GI, and we let them know that we were on our way in. And to make sure that the ER department knew, we gave them all of her symptoms over the phone. And when we got to the ER that night, it was just before midnight, March 1st. And they had her sitting in the waiting room for about four or five hours before they took her back. And I kept asking, letting them know she's in severe pain and sick. And they said her acuity level was high and she would be the next one called back. And we saw other patients being called before her. Um, one I remember walking out on crutches as if a sprained ankle that was called before Jordan was. Jordan got admitted to the hospital that morning, March 1st. They said she was sick. And I told them, yes, we've been trying to tell you for three years. She, at this point, she saw a new hematologist, the one that was attending um, that week. 
that Jordan was admitted on March 4th, she asked me about the cancer testing that I requested. And at that point, she told us the hospital doesn't treat that type of blood cancer, which they do. So I don't know why she told me that they don't. She suggested that Jordan may have lymphoma and they needed to do further testing. At that point, she already had catheters in her abdomen, uh, specifically into her liver to break up the blood clots. They were giving her high doses of uh, blood thinning medication called TPA to break up those clots. And she was being monitored in the ICU. Um, March 5th, she went back to the oncology unit after the catheters were removed. And that day they did the bone marrow biopsy to determine if there was any type of cancer. March 6th, we were waiting for test results. Jordan was heavily agitated. Um, she kept trying to get up out of bed. The last word she said to me is, Mom, I just want to go home. And then she laid back down and fell asleep. I went, later that evening, I went to the Ronald McDonald house where I was staying to get some rest. 30, about 30 minutes after I left that night, they called me back to the hospital saying Jordan was non-responsive and that they had administered Narcan. I got back to the hospital. Um, it's just around the corner, so it was very quick that I got there. And the doctor, I recall him on the phone arguing over the last bed in the ICU for Jordan. Um, they told me again that they administered Narcan and she was non-responsive. And what is Narcan? Narcan is a medication used to reverse the effects of overdose. On March 6th, they took her back to the ICU and they said that they needed to put her in a medically induced coma to give her time to heal. The resident doctor came and told us that her ammonia levels were extremely elevated. And I asked how they missed that. And he, his answer was, not to focus on placing blame, but to focus on Jordan getting better. Early in the morning on March 7th, general surgery came in to place in a, a drain in her abdomen to drain the fluid in her stomach. Um, when they were giving her IV fluids, instead of draining normally, um, they would drain into her abdomen. It's a condition called ascites. Uh, so they placed the drain to drain the fluid. And then a couple hours later, the same doctor who told us that she had Narcan and that he was arguing for the last bed in PICU told us that they were stabilizing her to life flight her to another facility. She needed a liver transplant. And, um, so that's what we were preparing for. And at that time, Anthony went home to get some sleep. And I stayed at the hospital. Um, about eight in the morning, they did rounds. 
the ER's attending doctor told us Jordan was very sick. And I again told them I, I understood that and, you know, that I had been trying to tell them for some time. When they were doing rounds, the GI doctor who saw her earlier or in February came running in and told the attending hematologist that she did not, she failed to read Jordan's lab work from the weeks prior when she was in the hospital and Jordan had alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency disorder, which is a disorder that affects the, the liver and the lungs. And then she came and told me, and she said she would um, provide me more information once Jordan was um, stable and transferred to the other facility. They were still at that time at about eight in the morning, still talking about transferring her to another facility. Um, so we thought that the worst was probably over and we didn't realize, because they never said she was dying. About 8.30 or so, neurosurgery came in and said he needed to remove the shunt tubing from her abdomen because she had an infection and he didn't want it to spread to her brain. So we authorized the surgery to remove the tube and externalize it. So that way they could still drain the fluid, but she wouldn't get any infection. And I waited in the family room right outside the ICU unit while they performed that procedure. About 1040 in the morning, uh, while she was in surgery, a social worker came in the family room and sat down and told me Jordan coded during the procedure. And I just remember going to her room. I ran to her room yelling, you killed my daughter, you killed her. I know the social worker asked me what I meant and I told him, but I told him that I had been constantly bringing her in and that they refused to do anything beyond migraines. They did CPR for about an hour until Anthony could get back to the hospital. They were giving her blood products, doing CPR, and they ended up stopping at about 11.40. That day they asked us if there was anything we needed. And not knowing what I know now, we asked for the labs and the testing that they had done because we have other children and we needed to know if there was something we needed to be worried about. Everybody said that they would get those results to us and nobody ever did. We went to patient relations about two weeks after her death and asked for the information again. We advised that they said that they would tell us and that they didn't. And he took down a report for patient relation complaint and the same day we filed to receive all of her medical records even though state law says that they have to turn over medical records in 15 days they didn't turn them over to us until probably 40 days later while i was going through her records reviewing everything over the next couple months i found out in july of 2018 that the records we're missing a huge chunk of data. They 
didn't give us everything. So we re-requested them. And again, it took them another 45 days to get us the records. And to this day, we still don't have everything. So they're holding back part of her record from you. We think that. And in addition, that part of the record doesn't exist because they never put it in. That things happened and they never detailed it and never put it in her record at all whatsoever. In February of 2019, we went to Rare Disease Week in Washington, D.C., and we had an opportunity to share part of Jordan's story. We were there based on the rare disease of the blood cancer she ended up being diagnosed with six weeks after her death. And what was that blood cancer called? It's called primary myelofibrosis. It's an extremely rare form of leukemia, basically. Um, there's less than 50 children in the United States who have been diagnosed with that particular cancer. Less than uh, 20,000 nationally that have been diagnosed with that. Someone at Rare Disease Week had asked us, or they made comments about that it sounded um, fishy, that it didn't seem like things were on the up and up. And they asked us to inquire if her death had been reported to any uh, agency. So when we got back from Rare Disease Week, I contacted the California Department of Public Health and I inquired whether or not her death had been reported. Um, they told me that they had found no incidents from the, based on the facility name, the date, or her, her name, that anything had been reported to them. So I asked her, you know, if they were required to report. And so I gave her some information. She put me on hold and came back and says, I highly recommend you file a complaint. So we did file the complaint with the California Department of Public Health. And even though we have had multiple conversations with the investigator, we still don't have the results of the investigation. And it's been 10 months. What do you think's going on with that? We do know that there's a lot of information that we provided to the state. We do know that they have been actively working on it. I think part of it is it's a state organization, red tape, bureaucracy, limited personnel, limited hours that you can work. Um, and because of those things, it has caused delay in responding. We're just hopeful we can get something by the end of this month. So Jordan's actual diagnosis, which she didn't find out until six weeks after she died, was this rare blood cancer. Yes. Uh, how did you find out that that was her diagnosis? From her medical records. And then we took them to her primary care doctor and asked him about the test. We also paid for a medical expert review, which confirmed the information. The hematologist that had treated Jordan that last week, the one who suggested lymphoma, ended up calling us about April 23rd, 2019, asking if anybody had spoken to us about what was going on. At the time, 
I talked more in terms of the cancer. Well, she did confirm it was primary myelofibrosis. I asked her if it was caught sooner, would Jordan still be here? She said yes. I don't know now if she was referencing the cancer or referencing the mistakes that were made on March 6th because the words about the cancer were never really specifically spoken. And I never heard from her again. I do know she left the facility in April, 2019. And for the blood cancer that Jordan did have, what generally is the prognosis if it's uh, diagnosed early? From what I've read on it, the diagnosis, um, the life expectancy can be up to 10 years. However, with new treatments, um, stem cell transplant, she could have been cured with stem cell transplant and not have, or ha have been in remission and lived a full life. Wow, that is just a nightmare that you have lived through. And it sounds like it's been made worse by the way the hospital and, and the medical system has responded. So they're suspecting they overdosed her. At that time, we didn't know that. Um, we have since learned that, yes, they overdosed her. And she wasn't being monitored. Uh, there were no orders for neurological checks on Jordan. So nobody was checking on her periodically like they should have been. We didn't know that until September of this of 2019. Yes, um, we believe they covered it up. We believe that um, the hematologist told us in April that she wrote a report and submitted a report on what happened with Jordan. And we believe that was submitted to hospital administration. And it possibly indicates an adverse event that occurred that is required by state law to be reported and that the hospital chose to cover it up instead of report it. Because if they did report it, they had to notify us that they reported it. They didn't, they chose not to report it at all. So here you are dealing with the loss of your teenage daughter and now having to take on the medical system to get some sort of justice. Yeah, we filed. Um, in California, we have medical malpractice caps that make it impossible for anyone to seek legal representation for medical malpractice or wrongful mm. death. Wait a minute. Say that again. In California, there's medical malpractice caps that make it near impossible for anybody to seek representation for medical malpractice and wrongful death due to medical malpractice. So they put a, a, a cap, a maximum on the amount that can be awarded to a harmed patient and therefore because the cap is so low, no lawyer is going to take that on because they're not going to get proper payment. Well, correct. So they effectively set this up so that patients can't get justice. Correct. And doctors don't, they're not held accountable either by the justice system or by the, the state's medical board. Right. So what is the state medical board doing about Jordan? We have not heard. We submitted the initial nine complaints 
um, against nine of the providers um, in October of 2018. And then we signed releases uh, authorizations for release of medical records for another 257 medical providers at the same facility and asked we sent it directly to the enforcement analyst who was handling the original nine and asked him to include the same 257 in that investigation as an overall investigation into Jordan's death and all of the providers that were involved at some point and that was in January of 2019. We haven't heard anything. Uh, I think I read a bit where you're wanting to change the law that was made in 1975 about the caps on... Uh... Yes, the 1975 law is called MICRA. It's, um, the acronym is Medical uh, Injury Compensation Reform Act of 1975, which limits the compensation of $250,000 for medical injury or wrongful death due to medical injury. In that statute, it has the limits an attorney can get paid, which amount to approximately $75,000. We were told in our case, it would cost about $200,000 to litigate for a $250,000 return ultimately making it not economically feasible. And so patients can't get justice. Victims of the medical system can't get justice. So there is currently a law or a ballot measure proposed um, called the Fairness for Injured Patients Act that Consumer Watchdog of California is trying to get on the November 2020 ballot for the voters to overturn the medical malpractice laws established in 1975. Okay, and if you send me that link, I'll include uh, the link in the show notes so folks can find it. Absolutely. Where are you now with the legal stuff? We filed um, our medical malpractice case in May of 2019. We have served 22 named defendants, and we just had a hearing last week where we were granted our motion to file a second amended complaint. Um, so that is done and we're expecting the defense counsel to do what's a, called a demure, and that is their opposition to our case saying it's basically unwarranted and their reasons why it's unwarranted. And then we'll have an opportunity to respond to dispute their attempts. And then it will go up to a judge to determine whether or not our case has merit to continue or if they grant the defense demure. And so have, have you folks found a lawyer to help you? We don't have a lawyer. Not yet. So you're writing these legal briefs on your own? We have consulted with attorneys, a couple attorneys to assist in us writing these briefs, but yes, we're doing a lot of the work. Wow. So you're dealing with the loss of your daughter and you're having to go up against the medical system because they harmed her, and you're having to do the legal legwork on your own because they've set up the system so that you can't really get legal representation. Correct. Yeah, I'm just like shaking my head here for the folks who aren't seeing us. It's 
unbelievable how so there's got to be hundreds thousands if not tens of thousands of californians who've been harmed who are in the same situation as you yes um that's what the fairness for injured patients act will do a lot of us are coming forward and speaking out about our experiences so that way we can spread the word about why we need the change the ones most harmed by the current laws are children, stay-at-home parents who have no income um, from employment, and elderly. Even our former governor, who signed the law in 1975, said that the law was unfair, but he never did anything to change it. So how are you managing all of this financially? Um, I cashed in all of my savings to help pay for everything. We did start a GoFundMe to help with the legal bills that we know we're going to incur. Okay, um, and I can include the link to your GoFundMe page as well, but if people were searching on GoFundMe, how would they find your page? If you're searching on GoFundMe, I believe it's under Jordan's story um, that I set it up with, and I reference why we're fighting we're fighting to get accountability and justice for Jordan. And we need the help to help pay for an attorney since the system is set up that no attorney would take our case unless we pay for it. And then how are you doing emotionally through all of this? Because that's what parents should only have to focus on when they lose their child is how they're doing emotionally and, the, and their family. For me, um, it's up and down. Days are hard. I have a lot of work that I have to do besides my regular daytime job. Reviewing files and preparing legal documents, uh, being a caretaker, a, a wife, a mother. Uh, I feel that I haven't had time to really grieve the loss of our daughter. It sounds like you're making meaning by working on this advocacy in Jordan's name. Yeah, we want to ensure that they don't kill anybody else again. And so I found you folks on Facebook. What's your uh, Facebook account so other folks can find you? Um, we use the hashtag Jordan's story. Um, oh, one word no apostrophes <laughs> so that way people can easily research for Jordan's story and be able to find it and if there's one message you wanted listeners to know what would that be don't give up if you're sick or your child is sick and you're the caregiver if you don't believe what they're telling you push back go to another facility Seek second, third, 10 opinions if you have to. Um, the doctors told us that the amount of information out there for diseases and medical is so large that they don't even know a tenth of it. Don't let them discourage you and, and ask them to have conversations with you about research you do on your own. Don't let them disparage you. Don't let them chide you. Don't. Don't let them discourage you from doing your own research. 
and asking questions. It really requires a cultural shift within the medical system to get away from that arrogance and God complex. Yes, it does. Thank you, Sandy, and thank you, Anthony, for sharing your story. I'm, I'm so glad we connected. I'm so sad that it's because it's over the loss of Jordan, but I, I thank you for the advocacy work you're doing and for sharing the story and making more people aware of you know, what you went through so that, like you say, maybe they don't have to go through it as well. Thank you, Scott, for taking the time. We, we do appreciate it. As if the death of your child isn't traumatic enough, but then to find out that the hospital was responsible and that her death was needless would only deepen the trauma. As if things couldn't get worse, the hospital tries to cover up their deathly error, effectively erasing Jordan's experience and by extension her memory. But it does get worse. The legal system is set up so patient victims are powerless and doctors are unaccountable. If you're in California, be sure to vote for the Fairness to Injure Patients Act in the November election. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and all the major podcast platforms. Please consider leaving a kind comment. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Simply go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. Do you need the support of a counselor for dealing with your own experience of medical error or living with complex chronic illness? You can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Thank you for listening. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to others.